Victorian Perspectives on Gender Roles During the Victorian period, social class was fairly rigid, with some blurring at the upper and lower boundaries of the middle class, with some movement possible. And we've seen all this in our discussion of Jane Austen's Emma. Gender roles were based on the ideology of separate spheres, which we've mentioned before when we discussed Mary Wollstonecraft and contemporary responses to her. Women's sphere was the domestic and private sphere, the sphere of the home, where she had moral authority and transmitted the moral values of the culture to the next generation. Men's sphere was the public sphere, the world of business and politics. Offensive as it might sound to our 21st century ears, Alfred Lord Tennyson's 1847 poem, The Princess, articulates this ideology of separate spheres this way. Man for the field and woman for the hearth, man for the sword and for the needle she, man with the head and woman with the heart, man to command and woman to obey, all else confusion, end quote. Notice that not only does this poem express the prevailing view of separate spheres, but also warns that without it, there would be confusion and chaos. Similar arguments were made about the structure of the social classes. On the topic of female education, which we've discussed previously, Frances Power Cobb wrote an autobiography that details her experiences as a girl at a fashionable English boarding school where upper-class women would have gone. She mentions the cost, quote, It was, at all events, the most outrageously expensive. The nominal tariff of 120 pounds or 130 pounds per annum, representing scarcely a fourth of the charges, for extras, which actually appeared in the bills of many of the pupils. My own, I know, amounted to £1,000 for two years schooling, end quote. This compares with £20 per year that Charlotte Bronte earned as a governess. Here is an excerpt from Cobb's description of life at the school. The din of our large double schoolrooms was something frightful. Sitting in either of them, four pianos might be heard going at once in rooms above and around us, while at numerous tables scattered about the rooms, there were girls reading aloud to the governesses and reciting lessons in English, French, German, and Italian. This hideous clatter continued the entire day till we went to bed at night, there being no time whatever allowed for recreation, unless the dreary hour of walking with our teachers when we recited our verbs could so be described by a fantastic imagination. In the midst of the uproar, we were obliged to write our exercises, to compose our themes, and to commit to memory whole pages of prose. On Saturday afternoons, instead of play, there was a terrible ordeal, generally known as the judgment day. The two schoolmistresses sat side by side, solemn and stern, at the head of the long table. Behind them sat all the governesses as assessors. On the table were the books wherein our evil deeds of the week were recorded, and round the room against the wall 
Seated on stools of penitential discomfort, we sat, five and twenty damsels, anything but blessed, expecting our sentences according to our ill deserts. Discipline was a significant aspect of these schools. Cobb mentions the subjects that she learned. Quote, Next to music and dancing and deportment came drawing, but that was not a sufficiently voyant accomplishment, and no great attention was paid to it. The instruction also being of a second-rate kind, except that it included lessons in perspectives, which have been useful to me ever since. Then followed modern languages. No Greek or Latin were heard of at the school, but French, Italian, and German were chattered all day long, our tongues being only set at liberty at six o'clock to speak English. Such French, such Italian, and such German as we actually spoke may be more easily imagined than described." an interesting account, and it is consistent with what we have seen before in discussions of female education. Subjects such as music, singing, drawing, and modern languages were common elements of the curriculum, but no classical languages. Another popular genre of literature during the Victorian era was the conduct manual, particularly those that dealt with female conduct. Sarah Stickney Ellis was the author of a number of these guides for women, including The Daughters of England, The Wives of England, and The Mothers of England. She stressed women's roles as providing a positive moral influence on the men of their families, and this idea of woman as the representative and guardian of moral authority was an important aspect of Victorian domestic ideology that I've mentioned before. The woman of the house was seen as a moral light in the darkness and responsible for instilling the moral values of the British Empire into her children. This is beautifully summed up in an excerpt from The Women of England, Their Social Duties and Domestic Habits. Quote, How often has man returned to his home with a mind confused by the many voices which, in the mart, the exchange, or the public assembly have addressed themselves to his inborn selfishness or his worldly pride, and while his integrity was shaken and his resolution gave way beneath the pressure of apparent necessity or the insidious pretenses of expediency, he has stood corrected before the clear eye of woman as it looked directly to the naked truth and detected the lurking evil of the specious act he was about to commit. Nay, so potent may have become this secret influence that he may have borne it about with him, like a kind of second conscience for mental reference and spiritual counsel in moments of trial. And when the snares of the world were around him and temptations from within and without have bribed over the witness in his own bosom, he has thought of the humble monitress who sat alone, guarding the fireside comforts of his distant home, and the remembrance of her character, clothed in moral beauty, has scattered the clouds before his mental vision and sent him back to that beloved home, a wiser and a better man. 
the women of England possessing the grand privilege of being better instructed than those of any other country in the minutiae of domestic comfort, have obtained a degree of importance in society far beyond what their unobtrusive virtues would appear to claim. The long-established customs of their country have placed in their hands the high and holy duty of cherishing and protecting the minor morals of life, from whence springs all that is elevated in purpose and glorious in action. The sphere of their direct personal influence is central and consequently small, but its extreme operations are as widely extended as the range of human feeling. They may be less striking in society than some of the women of other countries, and may feel themselves on brilliant and stirring occasions as simple, rude, and unsophisticated in the popular science of excitement. But as far as the noble daring of Britain has sent forth her adventurous sons, and that is to every point of danger on the habitable globe, they have borne along with them a generosity, a disinterestedness, and a moral courage derived in no small measure from the female influence of their native country. End quote. I mentioned Charlotte Bronte, who wrote Jane Eyre, among other novels, as someone who had worked as a governess, and we considered the plight of governesses when we discussed the character of Jane Fairfax in Jane Austen's Emma. There is an 1839 letter from Bronte that is famously referred to as the horrors of governessing. Remember that she was earning about 20 pounds a year at the time. Here is an excerpt. I have striven to be pleased with my new situation. The country, the house, and the grounds are, as I have said, divine, but alack a day, there is such a thing as seeing all beautiful around you, pleasant woods, white paths, green lawns, and a blue, sunshiny sky, and not having a free moment or a free thought left to enjoy them in. The children are constantly with me, and more riotous, perverse, unmanageable cubs never grew. As for correcting them, I soon quickly found that was out of the question. They are to do as they like. A complaint to Mrs. Sidgwick only brings black looks on oneself and unjust partial excuses to screen the children. I have tried that plan once. It succeeded so notably that I shall try it no more. I said in my last letter that Mrs. Sidgwick did not know me. I now begin to find that she does not intend to know me, that she cares nothing in the world about me except to contrive how the greatest possible quantity of labor may be squeezed out of me, and to that end she overwhelms me with oceans of needlework, yards of cambric to hem, muslin nightcaps to make, and above all things, dolls to dress. I see now more clearly than I have ever done before that a private governess has no existence, is not considered as a living and rational being, except as connected with the wearisome duties that she has to fulfill. While she is teaching the children, working for them, amusing them, it is all right. If she steals a moment for herself, she is a nuisance, end quote. Bronte goes on to say some positive things about Mrs. Sidgwick's husband. Mr. Sidgwick is, in my opinion, a hundred times better, less profession, less bustling condescension. 
but a far kinder heart. It is very seldom that he speaks to me, but when he does, I always feel happier and more settled for some minutes after. He never asks me to wipe the children's smutty noses, or tie their shoes, or fetch their pinafores, or set them a chair, end quote. And finally, on this topic, a few excerpts from a letter by Caroline Norton, who is writing on the subject of women's rights. Note that she describes the situation prior to 1857 and the passage of the Matrimonial Causes Act, which legalized divorce. Quote, A married woman in England has no legal existence. Her being is absorbed in that of her husband. Years of separation of desertion cannot alter this position. Unless divorced by special enactment in the House of Lords, the legal fiction holds her to be one with her husband, even though she may never see or hear of him. End quote. This refers to the legal doctrine of coverture, whereby the wife's separate legal identity disappears at the moment of her marriage and is now covered by her husband's. She says, An English wife cannot make a will. An English wife cannot legally claim her own earnings. Whether wages for manual labor or payment for intellectual exertion, whether she weed potatoes or keep a school, her salary is the husband's, and he could compel a second payment and treat the first as void if paid to the wife without his sanction. No law court can divorce in England. A special act of parliament annulling the marriage is passed for each case. The House of Lords grants this almost as a matter of course to the husband, but not to the wife. In only four instances, two of which were cases of incest, has the wife obtained a divorce to marry again. She cannot prosecute for a libel. Her husband must prosecute. She cannot sign a lease or transact responsible business. She cannot claim support as a matter of personal right from her husband. The general belief and nominal rule is that her husband is bound to maintain her. That is not the law. He is not bound to her. He is bound to his country, bound to see that she does not cumber the parish in which she resides, end quote. Norton says that the marriage ceremony is a civil bond for him and an indissoluble sacrament for her. She goes on to point out the social class difference in this matter. Since the days of King Henry VIII, for whose passions it was contrived, our method of divorce has remained an indulgence sacred to the aristocracy of England. The poorer classes have no form of divorce amongst them. The rich man makes a new marriage, having divorced his wife in the House of Lords. His new marriage is legal. His children are legitimate. His bride occupies, in all respects, the same social position as if he had never previously been wedded. The poor man makes a new marriage, not having divorced his wife in the House of Lords. His new marriage is null. His children are bastards, and he himself is liable to be put on his trial for bigamy the allotted punishment for which crime at one time was hanging and is now imprisonment, end quote. Even though this situation changed somewhat after the divorce courts were legalized as part of the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857, the situation was still tilted in favor of males. 
Husbands continued to receive custody of children in most divorces, and there were different requirements for divorce depending on gender. A man could divorce his wife for infidelity, for example, but a woman could not divorce her husband for adultery alone unless there was some additional cause such as cruelty, desertion, or incest.